If you take once again your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15, I just mentioned if uh, you're visiting with us and you don't have a Bible with you, uh, in the shelf just below the pew in front of you, you will find ESV Bibles there, and our text this morning will be on page 962, page 962 in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, the chapter numbers are the large numbers, the verse numbers, the small numbers. We read verses 1 through 28. I'm going to ask now that we read 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verses 41 through the end of the chapter. Please follow along as I read. These lovely Easter flowers here are in the view of the clock I normally look at, so y'all just lock in, okay? <laughs> Might be a long day. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 41 and following. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, the man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let me ask that we pray once more. Let's all pray together. Father in heaven, we believe that one day we will hear uh, the sound of the trumpet in the hills near and far, and that you will awaken the dead from the tombs and we will rise. We pray, Father, that that resurrection hope would be sweet to all of those here who are your children. We pray that those who are not yet would enter into that resurrection hope this morning. We pray together in Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians 15. You'll want to doggy ear that page in your Bible. It is one of the most glorious, wonderful, and important chapters in the Bible. Every Christian should learn it and return to it often. In this lengthy and glorious passage in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul follows a very tightly reasoned line of argumentation in order to prove the resurrection's veracity, its necessity for the Christian faith and doctrine, and its power to enable Christians to live in freedom and in faith and in obedience to Christ. Now, I want us to focus on one particular thread in this chapter this morning. I want to briefly acquaint you with the overall structure of the chapter. First, it's important to recognize who Paul's writing to. So, 1 Corinthians 15 isn't primarily an apologetic treatise. 
aimed at opponents of the Christian faith. I mean, it has been used that way. It certainly may be used that way. But apologetics is not Paul's primary interest in this passage. Uh, Rather, Paul is writing this for the edification of the Corinthian Christians themselves. He's writing in order to fortify their belief in the resurrection and to help them understand the relevance of the resurrection for Christian doctrine and for the Christian life. These are his main objectives. And we can break the chapter down, I think, into three main sections. The first would be in verses 1 through 19. Uh, There Paul begins with the aim of reminding the Corinthians of the veracity and necessity of the resurrection. He aims to argue that Christ really has been raised. And moreover, that the resurrection from the dead is indispensable to Christian doctrine and belief. Not only is it at the heart of the gospel, but it is what brings life and coherence to the whole of the Christian faith. And Paul concludes, as has already been said once or twice uh, in uh, this service this morning, uh, that if Christ really has not risen, then Christianity is a sham religion and it's a pitiable way to live. So he begins by arguing for the veracity of the resurrection from three angles. First, in verses 1 through 4, you have the argument from authority. That authority being the Bible, being the Word of God, being fulfilled prophecy from the Old Testament Scriptures. Paul tells us in verse 3 that Christ died according to the Scriptures, just as the Scriptures said He would. And then it says that He rose from the dead the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That's the argument from authority. And then you have in verses 5 through 11 the argument from testimony. Uh, Paul says that the risen Jesus appeared. He appeared first to Cephas, that's Peter. Then he appeared to the twelve. Then he appeared to 500 witnesses at one time who saw the physical, visible, corporeal, resurrected body of Jesus. He appeared then to James and then to all of the apostles. And then finally to the apostle Paul, he says, as one untimely born. And then thirdly, you have the argument from necessity. Authority, testimony, necessity. Paul argues that if this is untrue, verses 12 through 19, everything about our faith is untrue. Preaching is all vain. We are lying about God himself. Your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And he says, verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. It's a pretty ingenious argument that Paul is putting together. He's saying everything that is true about the Christian faith is evidence for the resurrection. And everything that is true about the resurrection is evidence for the rest of the Christian faith. It all must hold together. Uh, This is the death knell of theological liberalism. Uh, Christian liberalism, theological liberalism, is the idea that you can take away certain elements of the faith and maintain only those that sort of pass the liberal test. Uh, So often theological liberals will uh, get rid of the miracles in the Bible. Those were all symbolic. Uh, They'll get rid of uh, any sort of miraculous event that happened in the Old Testament. And they'll certainly deny a physical, literal, bodily resurrection of Jesus. Paul's saying you can't do that. You either take it all together or it all unravels and comes apart. You can't start pulling threads out of the Christian faith. None more vital than the resurrection of Jesus. That's the first major section. And then the next major section is verses 20 through 57. It begins with these transitional words in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, we're done talking about the veracity of the resurrection. It's a fact. It has happened. It stands on solid ground. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. We're done asking that question. And then what happens in verses 20 through 57 is that Paul seeks to instruct and to edify and to build up the saints in the doctrine of the resurrection and wants the Corinthian Christians to see its relevance for their lives and for their faith. In verses 20 through 23, he highlights the relationship between Adam and Christ. Death through Adam, life through Christ. In verses 24 through 28, he speaks of how the resurrection of Christ entitles Jesus to universal reign and lordship. Uh, In verses 29 through 34, he again speaks of the necessity of this doctrine for the faith. Then in verses 35 through 57, most of which I've read for you, Paul provides a great deal of instruction regarding the resurrection bodies of believers. And what we learn here is that Christianity is not anti-body. Christianity doesn't despise the body. No, we are going to rise with physical bodies, physical, visible, corporeal bodies, but they will be in every way superior to the bodies we have now. Comparing the glory of the one to the other would be like comparing the glory of the sun to the moon. How much brighter and brilliant is the sun to the moon? That's how much greater our bodies will be at the resurrection. 
And of course, the crowning feature of the resurrection body and the resurrection life that will be ours is that it will be incorruptible, Paul says. Imperishable, immortal, undying, glorious, powerful, made in the image of Christ himself. That's what our resurrection bodies will be like. This then leads Paul to the third and final section, which really is just one verse. Paul has a very practical point he's driving at in all this instruction about the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection to come. He says, verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That's how I understand this chapter to be working, the basic outline of the chapter. I now want to address one issue in the chapter in the time that remains. Actually, there's really just a question, a singular question I want to ask this chapter and answer from this chapter. The question is this. What does the resurrection of Christ mean for our death as Christians? What does the resurrection of Christ mean for our death as Christians? Or I may ask it another way. What kind of attitude toward death should this passage produce in Christians? Uh, my friend, I'm interested in how you think about death. I'm most interested especially in how you think about your own death. Uh, perhaps you never think about death. Perhaps thinking about death makes you severely uncomfortable, and so you just ignore it, try to distract yourself from it. Perhaps you do, like C.S. Lewis talked about, some will do, they'll make a treaty with reality. This unpleasant thing will stay over there, I'll stay over here, and never the twain shall meet. I'll just keep that thing over there, I won't think about it, and that's the treaty I'll make with reality. But of course, my friend, you must face your own death. It's not something that you can avoid. Last I checked, the, the death rate is one per person. Your death is coming. You must face it. In a room this size, this many people, it's likely true that for some of us our death is coming much sooner than we expect. In fact, statistically, if we wanted to attempt some kind of reunion of this whole gathering, uh, it is unlikely that every one of us will be alive a year from now. But my friend, whether your death comes in a year or in 50 years, it will come. Uh, this hand, you could hold out your hand in front of you, this hand will one day be a skeleton in a box. Uh, that day is not far off. You may have taken a shower this morning, brushed your teeth, put makeup on, put on your Sunday finest, but one day, the bodies that are before me, the body that you see now, before you, will be eaten of worms. I'm not trying to be crude or sensationalistic when I say that. I'm just trying to get us all to face the reality of our situation. These are the facts. And as former President John Adams said, facts are stubborn things. So I ask you, my friend, what feelings does the prospect of your own death provoke in you? The Bible describes death as our last enemy. But the question I want to ask this morning is, what does the resurrection of Christ mean for the Christian's death? What does it mean for our great enemy and our great opponent? And there are three truths I'd like to assert on the basis of this passage, and the first is this. Point number one, because Christ is risen, our enemy death will not have the final word. Because Christ is risen, our enemy death will not have the final word. This has always been the hope of God's people. Uh, this has always been a part of biblical religion, that death is not the end, that for the believer, death is not the end of the story. This was the case even in the Old Testament. Uh, some people will sometimes suggest that the doctrine of a bodily resurrection, a physical resurrection, was really a New Testament doctrine. Uh, that, that Old Testament saints believed that death was the end of everything, that we have to wait till we get to the New Testament to realize there is a resurrection from the dead, which I think is just a bunch of hogwash and easily refutable. Numerous passages I could take us to to show that Old Testament saints hoped in life beyond the grave. I'll just quote a couple. Job 19, verse 25. Job, surrounded by death, in the midst of sorrows and trials and pain and suffering, he says, verse 25, for I know that my Redeemer lives. 
And at the last day, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. In Psalm 49, after speaking of how the rich and the poor, the wise and the foolish alike will all die, the psalmist reflects a confidence in his own victory beyond the grave. He says, verse 15, but God will ransom my soul from the power of death for he will receive me. I think the most obvious refutation of the idea that Old Testament saints didn't hope in life beyond the grave comes from the ministry of Jesus himself. Uh, He seems to expect that faithful, pious Jews of his day were hoping in resurrection life. You might remember a particular cast of characters that appear at several points in the Gospels. They're called the Sadducees. What were the Sadducees distinguished by? They did not believe in resurrection from the dead, and they were considered by the Orthodox Jewish community to be heterodox on that account. And Jesus engages with them on precisely that point, their unbelief in the resurrection from the dead. At one point, the Sadducees come to him, and they seek to mock his his doctrine of the resurrection. He responds to them in Matthew 22, verse 29, he says, you are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Now, as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. See, He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. In other words, you should have gotten this from your Old Testament. Present tense, I am the God of the living Abraham, of the living Isaac, of the living Jacob. The great enemy death does not have the final word over God's people. And John 11, Martha, the Lord's disciple, reflected her confidence in a resurrection from the dead as she talked with Jesus in the wake of her brother Lazarus' death. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. How did she know this? She knew it from her Old Testament Scriptures, which taught her about the believer's final victory over death that we will rise from the grave, that we will one day stand in perfection and see our Redeemer. But now it's here that we do have something new that's revealed. Jesus reveals something new to Martha. Because what the Old Testament saints didn't appreciate, didn't understand, was not that there is a resurrection, but how it can be that there is a resurrection. How is it that we're going to rise? Who can overcome the power of death? Who can give us entrance into resurrection life? That's what Jesus answers in John 11. He tells her that he himself is the gateway into life. He says, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. In other words, how is it that there could be life beyond the grave? What is it? that secures the hope of the resurrection? How is it that death does not have the final word? Who is it that, as Peter says in Acts 2.24, loosens the pangs of death? It is Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. By His resurrection, death loses His right to the final word. Death is not the end for the believer. Our enemy, death, will not have the final word over us because Christ is risen we will rise. And that's what Paul says in our passage. 1 Corinthians 15. Look with me, if you would, at verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Christ is the firstfruits. What does that word mean? Kids here this morning, do you know what that word means, the firstfruits? We don't use that term very often. It's a harvest term. First, imagine a garden being planted, and what are the firstfruits? They're the first fruits that are born in that garden at the start of spring. And the eager farmer collects those fruits and brings them in, and he's so excited, he's so thrilled. Why is that? What does it mean, the presence of first fruits? That more is a coming, right? These fruits are a harbinger of what's to come. Christ is seen to be the first fruits from the grave. He has risen. That means more are coming after him. I love this time of year following on Instagram, my brother Herb Van. 
Herb is a good and godly brother, a deacon here in our church. If you don't have the Instagram app, I'd encourage you to download it just to follow our brother Herb. Uh, I love this time of year, especially following Herb, because what Herb does with his Instagram is he gives us, the Vans have this glorious garden in their backyard, and Herb gives us kind of a play-by-play throughout the spring and into the summer. And usually around now, Herb, or maybe in a few weeks, he'll often post a picture of the first fruits, the first bit of harvest that he gleans from that beautiful garden. He's so thrilled to show us, look, look, more is coming. Look, we have the first fruits with us. It's so exciting to him because it means that more is to come. Well, this is the term that Paul uses to describe Christ's resurrection from the dead, that it's like the stone falling that starts an avalanche. It's the beginning of something. It's the start of spring. It's the first blossoms, the first fruits of the harvest of resurrected souls and resurrected bodies that are to come. Jesus' resurrection is like the down payment on our resurrection. It's the earnest. It's the surety. This will happen. Brethren, if Christ is raised and you are in Christ, you will rise. Your death, which will come if Christ tarries, will not be the end. Our enemy death will not get the last word over us. Whenever you look at a Christian's grave, you are not looking at the end of their story. You are not looking at the final word. You're looking at the lousy closing argument of a bad lawyer with a losing case who's about to be disbarred. You're looking at a wolf who's been defanged, a cobra who's lost its venom. When we look at what death has wrought in a believer, upon a believer, the eyes closed, the heart no longer beating, the body cold, we are not dismayed as Christians. We say confidently in the name of Jesus, you have done your worst death, but soon my Savior will stand and he will speak to you and he will have the final word and his word is life. Life over death. Resurrection from the grave. No, death is not the end for the Christian. It's the beginning. It's the beginning of spring. Beginning of something gloriously new. Point number two. Point number one was that because Christ is risen, our enemy death will not have the final word. Point number two, because Christ is risen, our enemy death will not have the final victory. Because Christ is risen, our enemy death will not have the final victory. Look with me, if you would, at verse 51 of 1 Corinthians 15. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I say, because Christ is risen, our enemy death will not have the final word. But what's more, we learn our enemy death will not have the final victory. It's a different thought here, I think. You see, it's true enough that we will rise. Death will not have the last word. The conversation will go on, if you will. It will continue after death. But where does the conversation ultimately go for the Christian? How is it resolved? Yes, we will rise, but what if we rise only to die again? What if we rise only to sin again? What if we rise to the fear of judgment and to condemnation? What if we rise only to be cast into hell along with the wicked and all those who reject Christ? And this, friends, is part of Paul's burden in this chapter. To show the Corinthians not only that we will rise but what we will rise to. What will be our situation when we are raised? What will our resurrection be like? And he tells us we will rise to incorruption. We will rise to immortality. We will rise to peerless perfection to be like the Son of God himself. We will rise in victory. We will rise in triumph. 
When we rise, there will be no more corruption. There will be no more mortality. There will be no more sin. There will be no more condemnation. And friends, herein lies the great victory of the Christian over death. It is that death will not mean hell for us. Death will not mean the triumph of sin's penalty and power. No, death will mean entrance into everlasting life and final salvation and victory over sin as we enter paradise forever with the Lord. It's how Paul reasons, verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, at that time we will have the victory. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? What's Paul doing? He's taunting death. He's making a mockery of death. Uh, he's challenging death. He's saying, death, look at me now. Risen to immortality and incorruption. Where's your sting, death? Well, you might imagine death responding at this point. Where's my sting? Paul, I am death. And you know the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. And you know as well as I do that you are a sinner and a lawbreaker, Paul, and that's my sting in you. That's my power over you. To which Paul might answer, I know that. I go right ahead and say it in verse 56. I wrote all about sin and death in the opening chapters of Romans. And I know that I'm a sinner and I'm a lawbreaker. I know what your sting is, death, but I didn't ask you that. I asked you, where is it? Where is your sting? Friends, for the Christian, death has no sting. It's gone. Do you know why? Because our sins are gone. Our sins have been removed through the blood of Jesus Christ. Because in our case, the demands of the law have been satisfied. And the law has no power over us to bring us into condemnation and into judgment. For us, the sting is removed. Friends, this is the only reason we've been afraid of death for so long. Because our sins and because of the demands of the law upon us. The sting of death is our sin. It's dying in our sins under the judgment of God. And sin's power is the law which we've all transgressed. But through the blood of Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven and removed. The demands of the law are satisfied. The beast has been defanged. The hornet has lost its sting. So what does death have left? If he doesn't have sin the power of the law over us, what does he have? He's got nothing. He finds himself outgunned and outmanned. Hebrews 2.15, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Christ himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We were enslaved to fear. Because death had dominion over us while we were in sin. But now, through the death of the Son of God, my sins are forgiven and now I'm not afraid anymore. You see, there's a blessed freedom we're supposed to live in as Christians. Death doesn't have the final victory. Death has lost its sting in our case. And now as we approach our death, we don't do so with fear and trembling, but rather with a kind of blessed anticipation. As we will sing, death was once my great opponent. Fear once had a hold on me, but the Son who died to save us rose that we would be free indeed. Friends, this is why the apostle can taunt death, can mock death to his face. This is why Christians like you and me can defy death. It's why Christians can stare into the open grave. They can say, I'm not afraid of you anymore. I'm not enslaved by you anymore because Jesus has died for my sins and he has satisfied the demands of the law on the cross and what's more he rose and therefore I will rise. And with him I will have the victory over death. So friends, what's to be the Christian's attitude 
toward death. It needs to be one of triumph, one of victory, one of boasting, one of gloating, one of exuberant rejoicing. Death has no hold on me through what my Lord has done. Because Christ is risen, our enemy death will not have the final word. Because Christ is risen, our enemy death will not have the final victory. Friends, let me ask you, if this is the Christian disposition toward death, what should a Christian funeral be like? What should a Christian funeral be like? I was talking to someone very close to me yesterday about being at the funeral of someone outside of Christ and how horrific and terrible it all was. No hope, no life, just, just the grave. Well, what should a Christian's funeral be like? Christians so often blow it with funerals. A Christian funeral should sound like this. John Collette Ryland, 18th century Baptist minister in Northampton, England, speaking at the funeral of his departed friend, one Andrew Gifford, who had died in the Lord. Ryland says this. Christ came to grapple with death on the cross. And that horrid monarch was armed with all his terrors. He had his full force upon him and darted his sting with such violence and vengeance into Christ's whole frame that he struck that sting through his body and soul into the cross and could never draw it out anymore. So that the king of terrors has never been able to bring his sting to the deathbed of a Christian, nor will he to the end of the world. But this was not glory enough for our almighty conqueror. He went down into death's dark dominions, fought him upon his own ground, tore his crown from off his head, broke his scepter to shivers, and with the triumph of a conquering God, he said, O death, I will be thy plague. O death, I will be thy destruction. And now the Christian can follow his divine conqueror with the triumphant apostrophe of the apostle Paul. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? And now we can, with great truth, use the common words in the form of service in the Church of England. We commit this body to the ground in sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Then looking straight into the grave of his departed friend, John Ryland said this, Farewell, thou dear old man. We leave thee in the possession of death till the resurrection day. But we will bear witness against thee, O King of Terrors, at the mouth of this dungeon. Thou shalt not always have possession of this dead body. It shall be demanded of thee by the great conqueror. And at that moment thou shalt resign thy prisoner. O ye ministers of Christ, ye people of God, ye surrounding spectators, prepare, prepare to meet this old servant of Christ at that day, at that hour, when this whole place shall all be nothing but life and death shall be swallowed up in victory. Next time you're at the gravesite of a Christian, you bring that perspective. When you look on the grave of a Christian, you can celebrate that death died with them. The tomb of the Christian is not finally the Christian's tomb. It's death's tomb, swallowed up in the victory of resurrection life. All right, point number three. Because Christ is risen, our enemy death will not have the final word. Because Christ is risen, our enemy death will not have the final victory. Thirdly and finally, because Christ is risen, our enemy death is not finally our enemy, but our friend. Because Christ is risen, our enemy death is not finally our enemy, but our friend. Hold the phones, okay? Do you think that's an overstatement? Do you think of death as a kind of friend? I do think this is the implication of Paul's argument. Martin Lloyd-Jones makes this exact point. He says this is, this is the thing, the great thing, the great miracle that Christ has wrought. He has converted death from being our enemy to becoming our friend. Now, in saying this, I don't mean to diminish anything about the ugliness of death. He's called an enemy for a reason. The pain and sorrows related to death are indeed terrible. 
They're a result of the curse. They're a result of the fall. Many Christians suffer greatly in their death. I've known numbers of Christians who have died young, and there's a special kind of sadness at the death of very young Christians. Paul acknowledges in 1 Thessalonians 4, it's okay to grieve in death, even as Christians. He says, just don't grieve as those without hope. I don't want, you can grieve, but don't grieve as those who think this is the end. There is a sadness in death, still, even for the Christian. But friends, the fact remains, the sting of death for the Christian is gone. The whole affair is transformed for the Christian. This is a completely different prospect than what it was when we were outside of Christ. He was once our great enemy, but now he becomes a kind of friend. Death for the Christian is no longer an imposing enemy who exerts domination and tyranny over us and who provokes fear and trembling within us. No, through Christ, death becomes our servant. He becomes this one who performs a service to us. He brings us to our Lord. He brings an end to our suffering and toil and trials and labor. He brings an end to our experience of sin. You will never experience sin beyond your death day. He thus becomes a kind of escort to an existence of incorruption and immortality. Death becomes an usher, a chauffeur, someone who walks us down the aisle to meet our bridegroom. Paul often spoke this way, of the service that death performs for the Christian. He saw death as an escort to greater things than what we now have in this life. He says, Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Death would be better for me. My situation only stands to improve at my death. Death is gain. He says, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Paul's talking about our bodies. He's saying your body is a flimsy little tent. Again, you could dress it up all you want. You young guys, you could work out and do squats and bench press all you want, but those Six-pack abs are going to forsake you, I promise you. All you got is a flimsy little tent. And who would want to live in a flimsy little tent when you might live in a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens? For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Verse 4, for while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. And Paul says, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. But we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. He's saying, my prospects stand to improve by my death. Death was gain to Paul. All gain. My Christian friend, do you view it as gain for you? Christian, is death more gain then it would be loss to you? Or are you so entangled in this world that you don't see death that way? We got our families, got our money, our vacations, our goals, our expectations. Death would rob us of all that. Do you see death as loss? Or do you see death as all gain to you? Even before vacation, before marriage, before children, before grandchildren, before the goal of your life is reached and the dream is fulfilled, is death more gain for you than all that you would lose? I'll say, friends, there is a kind of praying that we do as Christians sometimes uh, when someone is in danger of dying, a Christian among our fellowship, that can be positively carnal and worldly. We can act as though the very worst thing that could happen to them is to die. Friends, there's something way worse than death. And there's something way better than living out your life expectancy of 78.2 years. 
What's worse than death is an eternal hell. What's better than this life is the life to come in paradise forever with the Lord. And there is a kind of mourning, a kind of sorrow at Christian funerals that is positively pagan. We fail to sound this note of triumph, of victory. Precious in the eyes of the Lord are the death of his saints. Well, friends, I'm not saying we should pray to hasten anyone's death. I'm not saying we shouldn't be sad when our friends and loved ones depart from us into glory. But what I am saying is we shouldn't be funereal at their absence. We should recognize death for them is gain. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There's something glorious that's happening here. There's something wonderful that's happening here. There's gain for my brother or sister or my Christian mother or father or son or daughter or husband or wife. No, brothers and sisters, we don't fear death. Death isn't the worst thing that can happen for us. Death has lost its sting, has no more power over us. The whole world lives in fear of death. The whole world is trying to distract themselves from the reality of their approaching death. But we as God's people are freed to look death in the face. We embrace it. We welcome it. Death is no longer our enemy. He no longer strikes terror in our hearts, but rather becomes a kind of friend who brings us to Christ and to our eternal reward. You'll hear this sometimes from your doctor. You know, they'll want you to do certain things, you know, to alter your, your diet and your exercise. You need to lose weight. You need to start to eat more fiber or this, that, and the other. And, and maybe they'll give you that little comment at the end because, you know, after all, if uh, you don't have your health, you don't have anything. No, it's actually exactly the opposite for the Christian. If my heart were to stop beating now and I were to lose my physical health, you know what I would have? Unspeakable and unimaginable glory forever and ever with the Lord Jesus Christ. My health is all that I have. Friends, this kind of defiance of death Victory over death is one of the aspects of our witness that shines most brightly. We live in a world terrified by death. Just trying to Netflix it away, Spotify it away, social media it away, exercise it away, vacation it away. But friends, it's coming. It's coming. And for the Christian, we're not afraid. Oh, everybody is enslaved to death, lives in terror of death. But for us, we embrace it. It's coming. We even look forward to it. There is a kind of momentum toward our death for the Christian. Unto the grave, what shall we sing? We're approaching it. We're coming to it. Unto the grave, what shall we sing? Christ, he lives. Christ, he lives. And what reward will heaven bring? Everlasting life with him. Then we will rise to meet the Lord, and sin and death will be destroyed, and we will feast in endless joy when Christ is ours forevermore. It's always a joy to add new members to our fellowship. We recently had the joy of welcoming uh, Lance and Shirley Hartman along with uh, other members to our fellowship. Lance and Shirley are in my small group and it's been a joy to get to know them. And uh, at our last small group gathering, I hope Lance and Shirley won't mind me telling the story. They don't know what story I'm going to tell, so As we were getting to know Lance and Shirley, we uh, were acquainted with uh, the reason for moving from Colorado here to North Carolina. It had to do with the health condition that Shirley uh, has. I won't go into the details on that, but she was in a situation in Colorado that was life-threatening to her. And uh, she uh, was in the hospital uh, for a good deal of time, and uh, so severe was the health issue that she thought she was going to die. That was her expectation. And she's sharing this with us in our last uh, small group gathering. And she was talking about how special those days were, about going to bed thinking, could this be the night? With what exhilaration she would go to sleep, wondering, now as I close my eyelids, when I open them again, could it be? 
that my vision will be filled not with a hospital room, but with the face of my Savior. Think about that. Well, then Shirley woke up and all she saw was Lance. <laughs> Just a minor disappointment. I'll give you that, Lance. It is the next best thing. Oh. Friends, what's the point? No fear. No fear. When these eyelids close in death, when we draw our final breath, that means that we will be immediately ushered into the presence of our Savior to await our resurrected bodies, and then we will always be with the Lord. Friends, don't be afraid. He has no power over you anymore. His sting is gone. What are you afraid of? Nothing to fear. Only expectation and anticipation of resurrected life. Now I close with this word. What does all that I'm saying mean for those of you here who are not Christians? I've been talking about the death of Christians and what the Bible says about the perspective we should have as God's people on death. My friend, what about for you? Uh, what should the prospects of your own death provoke in you? But the Bible teaches, my friend, if you die in your sins, death will not be gained for you. It will be to lose everything. That hand will be a skeleton in a box very soon. Are you ready to face your death? Do you try to distract yourself from it? Do you fear it? My friend, this brief momentary existence is not all that there is. There is life beyond the grave, and in your heart of hearts, you know it. You know it. This isn't it. This is a dim reflection of what's to come. And so I ask you, are you ready? For your own death, are you prepared for life beyond the grave? For the Christian, it will mean eternal paradise. For you, it will mean eternal punishment and torment if you're not saved. Friends, those here who are Christians, it's important you understand this, those here in this gathering who are Christians, who are believers, who have been saved, it's important you understand how we are what we are, how it came to be this way, and how we no longer fear death and hope in eternal life. It's through what we call the gospel. The gospel means good news. The gospel, the good news, is given to us in the scriptures. It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is the good news about what God has done in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his incarnation, death, and resurrection, to make a way of salvation for sinners who come to him in repentance and faith. All of us in here have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us here have committed sins that we would be ashamed for you to know about. There's all kind of baggage in this room. This whole room cannot contain the baggage that we carry in here with us. I saw a quote this week from a woman who said, um, even when I'm at home, I always have 300 pounds of baggage with me. And maybe you came in here with some baggage this morning an awareness of your wrongdoing and all your sin, and maybe the thought has cropped up into your mind, this Christianity stuff can't be for me because you don't know what I've done. You don't know my record. You don't know my story. If you knew, I think you'd quickly conclude, preacher, that I'm disqualified. My friend, you can't out the grace of God. Where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. 
It was that way in my case, and it's in that way. It was that way in the case of every Christian here. Do not think you've disqualified yourself from the grace of God. The gospel is for sinners such as you are. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You're not disqualified from His grace. You come to Him with all of your sins, with all of your guilt, with all of your shame, with all of your doubts, with all of your fears, and He stands arms spread wide telling you, I want to give you this resurrection life. I will forgive you. I will save you. I will receive you. I'll one day make you into such a thing that if you could see it now, you'd be tempted to worship yourself. That's how glorious I will make you in paradise forever with God. I'll save you. I'll forgive you. I'll have you. No, you can't disqualify yourself from his grace. My friend, I urge you, don't think, well, I'll deal with this at another time. Friend, if you don't come now, I expect you'll never come at all. Don't wait. Come to Jesus Christ. Come to the living waters. Come to the resurrected Savior who is here, I believe, even now. His nail-pierced hands spread wide to receive sinners who come to Him in repentance and faith. My friend, it's my privilege as a minister of the gospel to tell you that if you turn from your sin and sorrow and shame, if you come unto the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord and follow Him, He will save you and you will rise. And death will not have the victory over you. He'll not have the final word. You'll no longer be in lifelong slavery and fear of death, but will know life beyond the grave. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're free. We're free. And you have made it so. We are free from our sin through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're free from the grave through his resurrection from the dead. We're free to live now in the hope of glory. We're free now to live in love for God and love for neighbor. We're free to slay our sin. We're free to approach our coming death day, not with trembling fear, but with triumph. That resurrection has overcome the grave. Life has overcome death. Father, we pray that you would give to all that resurrection life now. We pray that none of us, not a single one, would have a reason on that last day of our lives, which you have marked in your book, that not one of us would have a good reason to be afraid, but would only have a thousand inducements to hope, to rejoice, to enter into upon that last day with exhilaration, with anticipation of seeing the Savior's face. Oh, Lord, forgive us of all of our sins. Give us a resurrection that triumphs over the grave. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.